0: Slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: No, these are these are IKEA chairs that I bought many years ago that I think are coming to the end of their serviceable life. So the creaking is a sign of death almost.
2: Wait a way to puncture that myth. <laughs> Hi everybody and welcome to our show. Is it serious? a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table.
1: And I'm Jean-Luc Neptune, MD. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone.
2: So this will timestamp the recording a bit, but we're talking during Lent, JL, and that got me thinking about what you do professionally. So Mm -hmm. one way of observing Lent is to give something up, Uh, but that implies abstinence from anything really is entirely voluntary. And I really admire, I really do, that you help people at the point where sheer willpower may not be enough. There's obvious fodder here from many other episodes, but I think it's fair to say that sometimes people need medical help when it's not quite as simple as saying, okay, I'll just give up this habit now.
1: For sure, for sure. And, you know, as a Catholic myself, I'm also observing the Lenten season. And while I went to Catholic high school, I have to say I'm not the best with the religious calendar. I got, you know, I got the Christmas and the Easter parts (laughs) down pretty well. Uh, But uh, Ash Wednesday fooled me last week, so... (laughs) Uh, but I will say that while I'm not particularly religious myself as an adult, I do appreciate the opportunity that we give people to sort of restart their lives. Many people are sort of reborn in a way. And that's very, very gratifying. And, you know, sort of it's it's, it's almost like curing people of the thing that they had that was destroying their lives. And, you know, we're, we're there to be to help people, to give up the thing that's destroying that part of their life or whatever, you know, it's it's causing them to be unhappy or unproductive um, and however it's affecting them or their families.
2: I, you're right. It's, a, it's the season of, of rebirth in, in many senses. And, you know, my own way of observing Lent isn't addition through subtraction so much as just addition. So I tried to commit to doing something extra every day, Across the 40 days. And in my case, it's actually rereading hmm. a book that my dad wrote about Easter. Wow. Um, and it's over 400 pages long, but by breaking it down into these small sections each day, I'm getting through it. And I just kind of love the fact that I can honor my late father and observe this season where it falls in the church calendar. So this brings me to the fact that today we're going to do something a little different. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been finding our groove with the podcast, we've been finding out more uh, about each other, becoming friends. And Mm -hmm. while most of this education sort of discussion about how we became doctors and how we practice and professional experience is, you know, thinking of us as guys in white coats, you know, we have personal experiences that have taught us a lot as well. Breaking news, doctors are people too. For sure. So listeners of the show will know by now I've had my own cancer and and you've talked before, uh, JL, about being your dad's caregiver during his difficulties with cancer. So, I wanted to go a bit deeper into both of our stories, and today we're going to focus on you and your father. So if it's okay, can you tell us about uh, your father's experience with cancer and what you learned from that?
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, my dad, who I'll talk about more in a second, you know, who died actually in 2014. So it's hard to believe mm, this is uh, eight years, but you know, I've waited eight years to tell the story. And, and for, for a long time, I, I was trying to figure out how I could do it, how I could do it as a, a Ted talk and maybe share some of these lessons, but never really found a good venue. And I think actually now that we're doing the podcast, this is really a perfect way to tell the story because it is yeah. a narrative, right? It is a story. Right. And I think the story provides a lot of useful lessons. About life, about cancer and healthcare hacks. So, we're going to, you know, uh, salt this whole episode with a bunch of different lessons learned. And it also reveals a lot of realities about our healthcare system and provides some insights into how do you interact with the healthcare system? How do you interact with cancer? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm happy to tell the story today. And I think the best way to get started is to let me tell you about my dad. Yeah. My dad's name was Claude J. Neptune, and he was born in Haiti. He went to medical school back in the home country, the old country, and graduated first in his class in 1963. Wow! So he was smart. One of the important things to understand is how did my dad get here? And it's important to understand a little bit of history. So one of the important pieces of the legislation that comes out of the civil rights movement of the mid 1960s was the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. And what that act did is it abolished the national origins formula, which had been a framework that had discriminated against immigrants from non-Northwestern European countries. So what it did is it really opened the doors uh, in the United States to talented people all over the world who wanted to be part of the American dream but couldn't come here for whatever reason uh, because they were not from the right country. So my dad was an early pioneer of what we Haitian Americans call the Haitian American Diaspora. And my dad first came to the United States in 1966. Probably another really important thing to understand is at that time, there was a relative shortage of physicians in the United States. So in the U.S., we ended up importing thousands of docs from the Caribbean, from Asia, from India, from South America, and other places like Haiti, where people were being oppressed by often authoritarian regimes. So my dad eventually ended up training in New York. He served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. He was a volunteer during the Vietnam War, and he made a career as a pathologist. So he was a doc who examined body tissues, did lab tests, and provided key results for physicians like you. Yeah,
2: that's right. Wow. So I like to say the oncologist without the pathologist is blind. Um <laughs> It's true, though. My patients almost never get to meet the specialist that makes their diagnosis, but I literally couldn't treat anyone without the insights of fellow doctors like your father.
1: Again, the pathologists tend to be really smart. I'd say that neurologists tend to be really smart, you know, nephrologists tend to be really smart, but pathologists were really, really smart. So, in addition to being a pathologist, my dad was also a husband. He was a father, a brother, an uncle, a grandfather, a friend. Uh, He was a laboratory medicine wizard. That was actually his specialty. Uh, He was an (laughs) inventor, a computer geek. He used to write computer code in machine language like when I was a kid for fun. Uh, He was a handyman. He was a soccer star. He was a great athlete. He was the funniest person that you'll ever meet, a raconteur, and generally like an all-around great person.
2: He sounds amazing.
1: He was great. And my dad loved his work. So remember, you know, so much of what drew, drew me to medicine was how much my dad loved his work. And he was working full time until his late 70s. He actually tried to quit and retire on at least one occasion. He bought a place in South Florida, but he could never quit the job. He could never walk away, you know. Now it's important to understand that in January 2013 my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. So as a family like mm. we were 100% focused on my mom, you know, me, I have a sister, me, my sister, my dad, we were all about like taking care of mom and making sure mom got through this. Uh, But in April of that year, so just a few months later, my sister called me to say that my dad just wasn't his normal self. And, you know, my my parents lived in New Jersey. I lived in New York City. So I saw them on a regular basis, you know. So I I probably hadn't seen my dad in a couple weeks. Another important thing to understand is that in addition to being a physician, my dad was also a patient, but unfortunately not a very good patient. Uh, He had diabetes and hypertension for many years. That You know, to be really honest, we're not really well managed. And I like to refer to, you know, the hypertension and diabetes as the the Caribbean curse. For those of us who come from that part of the world, Mm. those two things tend to to move together. And my dad definitely had that as a problem for many years. Um, So I, I went to see him, went to see my parents in New Jersey. And you know the doctor's eyes Mark and I you definitely have this as well right the the spidey yeah. sense that you get the 5 second test the 10 second set test you know I definitely said like you know something is wrong with my dad and my sister definitely noticed it you know
2: Well someone as sharp as your father it's like when you notice that they've lost a step it really kind of stands out doesn't it yeah
1: Absolutely and you know and and I sort of did like a, a simple exam, a neuro exam. And, you know, he had a little bit of like an asymmetry on his face um, Mm -hmm. that sort of made me think like maybe he's had a stroke and that sort of makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? Late seventies, diabetes, Mm -hmm. hypertension, probably a stroke is what's going on. So I said, okay, well, first I got to convince this guy who refuses to go to the doctor to (laughs) go to a doctor. And then I got to figure out how do I even get him worked up? So I think the first reality that I wanted to talk about today was like, even though my dad had a cardiologist, he had an endocrinologist, he had an ophthalmologist, he really didn't have like a primary care doctor or anybody that we could turn to, you know? So I sort of put a lot of this work on my shoulders and, you know, I called around to some neurologists, but getting an appointment, was like weeks and weeks away, as you certainly know, right? Getting a, a specialist appointment is very difficult. And mm-hmm. to be honest, like, you know, I didn't know any of these neurologists, so I didn't know who was good, who was bad, and you know, so it was a real challenge. So I said, what's the best way for me, the like the most sophisticated consumer of healthcare services to get this guy worked up? And I actually took him to the ER. I grew up in a, a town in New, northern New Jersey, pretty affluent town, we had a nice hospital there. So I said, you know what, I can get him examined by a neurologist we can at least get his head scanned and at least get an idea of what's going on. So that's what we did. And the truth is, and you know, really want our, our listeners to understand that even for a doctor who's well-connected, understands the system, is from the area, knows all these doctors that he trained with, it's often difficult to access this system. And it is really challenging sometimes to get what you need on the timeline that you need. So one of the hacks that I wanted to share with folks is that while it might be difficult to get these relationships, sometimes you can actually purchase those relationships and wanted to just introduce the concept of concierge care to people. So, you know, concierge medicine is a type of medicine where uh, people work with a doctor, usually a primary care doctor, who agrees to see fewer patients who pay more, but those patients end up getting more attention. And, you know, look, I understand that not everybody has the money to pay for this. And concierge medicine can be really expensive. It can be like a thousand dollars a year membership to $50,000 a year. And there's all different types of uh, models out there. But I think that if you have a complicated case and, you know, again, my dad was pretty complicated at that time. I really do think it can be financially worthwhile. And, you know, sometimes even staying out of the hospital one time because your concierge doc knows what to do is connected with the system can sometimes really make it worth it. So that's a, that's hack that I give. And again, you can search on Google for concierge medicine doctors, and you'll find a lot of options out there. And I think one question that I wanted to ask you, Mark, is, you know, you're in Salt Lake City, probably, I don't think as much concierge care in Salt Lake as we have here in New York City. But how do you guys think about like this access problem from you professionally, but also Mark as like the brother and the son and, you know, the kind of guy who people reach out to when they have a medical problem?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking, Jale. And, and again, it's really, um, gosh, it's it's touching to hear, you know, how you tried to manage your dad's problem, but also a little heartbreaking that you ended up having to take him to the emergency room. So, as you might imagine, oncology comes, well, you know, comes with this incredible sense of urgency that, mm-hmm. that almost drives people, understandably, to think, well, should I go to the ER? Should I be hospitalized for this? The truth of the matter, though, and this is what's a little counterintuitive, this is almost all oncology is actually practice in the outpatient setting. It's done in our clinic. And that right. can seem counterintuitive. That can seem like it's out of sync with, again, this urgency. So the way my system works, and you're right, I'm in the middle of Salt Lake City. I, I cover six states. So it's a huge expanse. Wow. We have we're very lucky we have this navigator program, which is not the concierge physician that you're referring to, but actually nurses who are assigned to reach out to people within 24 hours
1: wow, that's of their great.
2: diagnosis. And, and it works, I'll be honest, it's not entirely foolproof, but it works more than 90% of the time because I find that people are falling into that gulf. From the moment you're told, even the suspicion of cancer, there's there's going to be panic that sets in. And so the sooner we can reach out and shepherd people through, again, this largely outpatient process, we can avoid unnecessary ER visits and unnecessary hospitalization. That's a lot of what I do. If a friend calls me, just like you said, I try to kind of talk them off the ledge very gently and compassionately and say, Hey, listen, we can probably do almost everything you need in clinic. It's just a matter of how we get you into the right doc.
1: Got it. Understood. And to the audience, I'd like to point out that, you know, Mark practices at Intermountain, which is sort of legendary for providing pretty good coordinated care, sort of Intermountain frequently spoken of in the same breath as Kaiser and Geisinger. So, you know, yeah, it's, uh, you. it's a great place to practice. Uh, not everybody practices in the same way. So great to hear that you guys offer that. Thanks, yeah. All right. So, you know, um, so I finally, as I said, had to convince this guy to go see somebody and finally had to get him to go. So I think it ended up being that I got him to the ER on a Friday, which sort of makes sense because I was working at the time. And, uh, you know, we got him to the ER. The workup was mostly normal, but I knew that the money was going to be in the head CT that they were going to do. Yes. So, you know, a couple hours after the CT was done, we were still in the ER. We we're waiting to get it to a room. Getting, they were going to admit him, um, and the ER attending just calls me over. He knows I'm a doctor. He knows that I'm the son. And the guy has the computer screen open, mm. and he casually points at this scan. Right, and I'm not a radiologist, but I could see a brain, and I sort of know what a regular brain looks like, and I could see a lot of white stuff where there wasn't supposed to be white stuff. Now, again, I'm going into this thinking my dad has an intracranial bleed, so I think that this is blood. But he said, you know what? That's not blood. That's a huge tumor, Mm. right? And in addition to the tumor, there was a lot of swelling around the brain, which explains why my dad wasn't himself. And I'll tell you, man, that was like getting hit by lightning. Yep, trauma. I mean, I remember where I was. I remember what I was wearing. Yep. I remember where I was sitting in the ER. You know, I've been back to that ER a couple of uh, times with my mom. Yeah. So I remember I remember it all. And it's literally like the most traumatic experience of my adult life. And I really wasn't ready for that. Yeah. And I really wish somebody could have said that, hey, you know, there's some bad news here and I want to share it with you, you know, as opposed to just like seeing this this random data point.
2: And it's weird because presumably this ER doc thought he was doing your professional courtesy you know, sort of doc to doc, hey, look at this imaging, but but it's so important to contextualize it. This is your father's brain that you're looking at. And, and, oh, God. and you know, I have to tell you, just anecdotally, I've had friends who are also, you know, in our profession, same deal, like they, they go, you know, to the ER, they go to the oncologist. And, you know, again, we're well-meaning, we think we kind of all speak the same language, but it, it comes across totally different, totally different when it's your loved one. Absolutely.
1: And, and, you know, what was really striking for me is knowing right then and there that my dad had an expiration date, Uh, right? I had never even thought of my dad dying because nobody in our house, you know, we had a small nuclear family. I had uh, cousins and relatives who lived far away. So I never really had somebody who was close to me who had died. So this idea that my dad, best case scenario, was gonna last 18 months, but could be much less than that. I mean, that was just such a traumatic thing to experience. And to be really honest, that was a Friday night I mean, I'm not kidding when I say this, I like, I sort of isolated myself and I really like cried all weekend. It was so difficult. And the truth is, you know, they admitted my dad and I just couldn't bring myself to be the one to give him the bad news. Uh, You know, and the old man didn't ask. And I didn't tell him, which almost, you know, eight years later, I still have mixed feelings about, man. And I, you know, I sometimes don't know if I did the right, thing. I mean, the right a, thing, I'm the last you know? person
2: that should tell you, you know, <laughs> what you did was wrong. I, I think there was a different generation too, you know, our fathers and the men that came before him, it just, health was talked about differently. Yeah. And also it, to, to be completely fair to you too, man, like you were the son there, you were actually not. No offense at all. You were not as attending physician. I don't know if it was, I know it wasn't your responsibility to tell him. So yeah. to, to the extent that I can try to sort of alleviate some of that for you, I, I hope that I can.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and uh, again, eight years yeah. later, I still think about it. In any case, so I waited until the attending neurosurgeon came on Monday because it was weekend, so the attending neurosurgeon wasn't there. And as you remember, there's this old saying that surgeons know nothing but do everything, <laughs> internists like us know everything <laughs> but do nothing, and pathologists know everything and do everything, but yeah. it's too late. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's the saying. So I'll never forget the scene out of a movie. The neurosurgeon comes in to talk to my dad and comes to tell him, like, hey, the scan has shown something big, a big intracranial mass, and said, hey, do you you have an idea what this might be? And again, my dad is a pathologist, right? He was triple boarded, right, in clinical, anatomic, and uh, the radionuclide or whatever the third uh, board specialty was. And I'll never forget this moment. My dad is just ticking down the differential diagnosis. So for our audience, the differential diagnosis is the list of things that could potentially be going on that you then run lab tests on and do other analyses to try to figure out exactly what's going on. And my dad is ticking through the differential diagnosis and he goes through like the benign causes, like a meningioma. Then he's talking about like some toxic causes and he's talking about like a whole bunch of exotic things. But he never mentioned... the neoplasms he never mentioned an astrocytoma or or a gbn or and and again it's a
2: significant omission yeah except your dad was so knowledgeable it was definitely on the list and he took it out yeah i hear you
1: absolutely so you know at the end of the day the verdict was this is probably bad you need to have surgery and it needs to be really soon and i think he ended up uh, we ended up having a, a surgery lined up for later that week again it was a monday so you know some other realities that come out of this is that, you know, your lab and imaging results can contain information that can be really emotionally challenging. You know, I've talked about this many times, you know, I've battled with these people online who say they want their health information now and they don't want it to be filtered. You know, people who've never spent a minute in an exam room have never given or gotten bad news will say, I can take it, you know, and while I believe that patients should be empowered, have their own data, control their health care. I still think that people need help with interpreting these results, you know, and especially for results like this. Now, again, we we, I, we didn't know my dad was going to have cancer, but still having somebody who can help you. I think' is so is so important. And and again, I mean, you know, you deal with this situation all the time now because your institution is giving people cancer related information before you have a chance to see them. So like, how do you, how do you even deal with this situation?
2: I mean, it's such a touchy issue, and I think the reason it's relevant to our audience, I mean, this is now a federal mandate, right? This is happening um, everywhere. And gosh, I, I walk the line, J.L. I want my patients to feel empowered. I want them to have autonomy and as part of that I think they should have ownership of their own information but you're right it's kind of a, a case of be careful what you wish for because if you log into your portal you know that information is not necessarily written for you and it's often encoded in our jargon I, right. you know I'm sure your dad was a fantastic pathologist, but I'm also equally sure he used his own vocabulary when he was describing things. And For sure. You know, your dad didn't write his pathology reports necessarily thinking that the patient was going to read it, at least not right away. So the way I've sort of brokered this with my patients is say, listen, I know you have the access. I know you may log in and look at things, but we have a promise where we say, okay, at our next visit, we're going to discuss and decipher any confusing language or any upsetting results that you've encountered. I got to be honest with you, I think 90% of my patients use this access. It's the minority that don't. And so this is just the new reality. And you're right, it is it, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to both respect their independence, but also buffer them from the fact that some of the stuff in there is going to be really, really hard to read. And you're right. I mean, there's sometimes no way to sugarcoat bad news.
1: Yeah. So, so I was going to say, just like as a hack, I, I, I really. With again, great power comes great responsibility. And I think that, (laughs) you know, to patients, I always encourage them, to at least the people that I talk to, and again, I've had great difficulty convincing people of this online, is that while you may have access to all your lab results, like consider giving a professional an opportunity to talk you through that. I understand that the system is not necessarily built for that, right? The system is not necessarily built for the doctor to get back to you quickly. I understand that not all doctors are good at giving bad news, but I think that' relying on professionals to help you and understanding your own limits and understanding like what you're saying. Like there's a whole argo that we use as doctors, you know, slang that we use as doctors that patients don't get. And if you're exposed to that, sometimes it can be challenging, particularly in emotionally complicated situations where there's a lot of uncertainty. So again, give your provider a chance and, uh, you know, understand that that information is useful and we want you to, to have that information, but we want you to understand what it means at the same time.
2: One of the reasons I'm so glad we have this format, JL, this long form conversation is you can explain yourself and you can explain your backstory in a way that, frankly, something like Twitter does not lend itself to. Like those people who criticized you for pushing back, I think gently on immediate records release, they don't know this is where you're coming from. And so you know you getting to kind of give us this context, I think, is really, um, really important, really humanizing. So. This has been a lot. It's been heavy so far. Why don't we take a break? And when we come back, you can tell us what happened next.
3: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk
1: about starting the morning right.
3: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient.
2: Comfortable. Ah. So, Chael, you've been so candid this far. I don't want to sound like a heartless oncologist who's just interested in therapies, but can you talk to us about your dad's treatment? <laughs>
1: Sure, absolutely. So, you know, we ended up being referred to a neurosurgery group that admitted to a major academic medical center in the area. So this is uh, Bergen County, New Jersey. And, you know, my dad ended up having a rather uneventful procedure that confirmed the diagnosis, which was the glioblastoma mm-hmm. multiforming. Uh, that's actually the same type of cancer that killed Bo Biden. And as you and I have mentioned many times, it's sort of the cancer that reflexively makes doctors yeah. say, oh, yeah. right. Uh, and uh, that was the diagnosis that that he had, you know. Uh, whenever I think about that surgery, I am always feel compelled to give a shout out to the nurses in the neuro ICU at Hackensack Hospital because they were like amazing, helpful, knowledgeable, and supportive. And uh, you know, as my wife likes always likes to say, that that praise coming from a doctor is like the <laughs> highest <laughs> praise that you could possibly give. And they were they were amazing. Now, my dad's surgery was, was called a planned admission. So, you know, we knew when when he was going in, he was going in for a specific procedure. So the surgeons that we were dealing with told us, hey, come in through the ER and that my dad would be admitted as soon as he got there. And, and again, like the guy who is experienced, an experienced doctor who had been, who had played this game, who had seen the system, I should have known better. But in reality, my dad ended up spending 28 hours in the emergency room. Oh. So more than one day in the emergency room. And he was literally in a curtained off section of the Hackensack Hospital ER, in a in a bin, you know what an ER looks like. A bin that was like three feet by eight feet. Okay. And this is not, you know. Uh, like nice suburban uh you know general hospital e r no. this is like local knife and gun club e r with all kinds of chaos going on around us, so you know my sister, my mother, and I took turns and essentially it was like a vigil, and we just watched over him, made sure he was comfortable, made sure he had food now again, like my dad was like the ultimate tough guy, right, so I never bothered him, he never complained, but he was there for twenty eight hours, and you know like the whole time, I was like like what is wrong with these asshole surgeons, right? Like, y- you know he's coming in, right? You know if you have a bed or not. The guy is comfortable at home. He's got a beautiful house. He lives comfortably there. He's, he, he, you know, the medication that they gave him some steroids to deal with the, the swelling in his brain. He's doing fine. Why did you bring him in, right? And the, the reality here to share with our audience is that most big hospitals run at like 90 plus percent occupancy, like 99% during cold and flu season, right? And they really don't have open beds. And it's a very common thing for, you know, patients to get all their care in the ER, to walk into the ER, be seen in the ER, and then be discharged from the ER. And, you know, and I will say this, like, a lot of doctors are really stupid and they don't think about a patient's comfort as much as they think about the procedure that they're going to do. And 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 Mark, I think you, you mentioned you had some experience with this yourself.
2: Yeah, uh, I feel bad. I feel like I'm almost gloating. I had the opposite experience of your poor father. And, you know, when I was having my major pancreas cancer surgery a couple of years ago, I actually asked my surgeon, I was like, how? you know, it's logistical. Like, how do I come into the hospital? Like, do I go to the ER? Do you admit me the night before? He's like, listen. I've seen you, you and I tend to get here pretty early in the morning together because I work with my surgeon. He's like, provided you can be here at six in the morning, there's no point in you coming in any earlier than that. So I think that the, uh, the thought process is changing, JL, but you're right. Like I think what you're getting at is you can have the most brilliant, technically gifted doctor, but they don't always, and we're certainly not trained to always think about the emotional and even the physical circumstances
1: of the patient prior to a procedure. Right, and what what I always say is that even at the highest end hospital, like the fanciest hospital, most people at a hospital do not have any formal training in hospitality. So, you know, they, they they don't understand comfort in the same way that a guy who works at Marriott understands comfort, you know? Yeah. And I'm still mad, like eight years later, you and you, you're getting to know me here, Mark. You know, I am sort of an even-tempered kind of guy. I don't get that angry. I'm like, like yep. seething anger eight years later as I think about these guys. And they're lucky that I'm I'm not going to say their names on this podcast because yeah. I'm still so upset. So I think, you know, in terms of the healthcare hack, remember that a hospital is not a hotel, right? Hospital people are not trained in hospitality. That said, there often will be somebody at the hospital whose job is like patient services advocate. And sometimes that might be a lower level person, but sometimes it's actually a very senior level person, depending on the hospital. And I would argue that it makes sense to reach out to that person. If you know that you're going into the hospital, at least to ask them, like, what should I know about being admitted? Is there anything I can do to make my admission simpler and easier? And you may find that that person, whose job it is to at least think in part about hospitality and comfort and things like that, may be able to help you in a way that your doctor and your doctor staff is generally woefully unprepared and untrained to handle.
2: Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about entry to the hospital. The other way I would kind of encourage our listeners to think about it is, okay, I'm going in. How do I get out? Like you don't want this to be a Hotel California situation, right? So one phrase that we even use in medicine jails is that discharge planning begins at admission and no one can see the future. Yes, hospital stays can be complicated and unpredictable, but it is very reasonable from the very get-go to ask your attending physician, the doctor that put you in the hospital, how long they anticipate you being there and what are the concrete goals you need to achieve with them. Prior to a safe discharge, in my case, my doc was incredibly explicit. You need to be walking this far per day, and you need to be able to eat and drink X amount. And I was like, okay, that's a that's a that's a tangible thing I can work towards. And you know, as you're mentioning, JL, your doctors themselves are usually part of a of a bigger team, people that are actually thinking about the logistics of all this. So discharge planners tend to be embedded in these sort of squads that are supporting the ho- the doctor in the hospital. So it's all about how do you build the bridge back home as well?
1: So, you know, after my dad's procedure, he had a good recovery, uh, was able to get back home. And again, you know, it, it's funny, you know, he had a pretty big surgery and he had a significant amount of brain tissue uh, removed, but you know, he, he did really well. And we got hooked up with an excellent oncologist in my hometown as a physician I knew it was going to be bad, right? I knew it was a bad situation, but at least let's give it a try at a first round of therapy to see what happens. So my dad underwent pretty extensive uh, uh radiation therapy. I think he had uh, image uh, guided IGRT, image guided radiotherapy, and he also had some chemotherapy as well. This was pretty early in the days of getting Avastin, so I think he got some Avastin. And you know, he endured that treatment and he did really well. He took it like a champ. And, you know, at the beginning, it was pretty clear that the tumor growth or at least the, the tumor was not recurring. And, you know, I think we were hopeful at that time. What was also very interesting is during that time, you know, my sister was spending a lot of time at home. I was living in the city. My mom was there. I really discovered like there was a lot that I could do without having to actually be at the house. So I started doing video visits with my dad. This is like, you know, twenty. 2014 so I was doing video visits on the iPhone uh, my mother and sister would take pictures of like my dad's blood pressure readings or his glucose uh, readings and then I would say okay you know take up the beta <laughs> blocker or, or you know increase the the long-acting insulin and I really saw the benefits and, and and it's interesting that it's taken a pandemic to get us to this point to realize like hey you know telemedicine actually really works so it was an unintended benefit of being away from my dad and him requiring all of this pretty intensive care on a regular basis. And
2: yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. And you were ahead of the curve there big time.
1: So, you know, one of the realities here is that treatment can get complicated very quickly. Right. So my dad was doing weekly, weekly cancer uh, visits. Um, You know, those were generating lots of data. His oncologist really wasn't that interested in the hypertension and the diabetes. So we were generating data there. And there really was nobody to pull this together again. Like before I couldn't find an an internal medicine doctor to quarterback things. And afterwards, I I definitely couldn't find anybody. Uh, Again, part of the reason I think we didn't go concierge at that time where there weren't that many options. Uh, but nowadays, you know, my mom has a concierge doctor. I recommend it to everybody, but I became yeah. the concierge doctor. I took six wow. months off of work, uh, to help take care of my dad and my mom who is also going through treatment. So, I mean, just to give you an idea of like how much work this required, but I think the hack that comes out of this is that while I learned that while there's a lot of stuff going on and, you know, patients can, you know, stack up, uh, uh all kinds of boxes worth of data, there's really only a couple things that a patient or a family really has to know, right? What is the problem list? What are the active things that are going on? What are the medications? And what are some of the significant milestones? So even a complicated patient like my dad, who was a guy that at any time... If he would have ever walked into an emergency room, you know, would have freaked out the staff because we knew about him. And not only did I know about him, but my mother knew about him and my sister knew about him. Uh, You know, we were always in a good position and we were always able to advocate for my dad and make sure that he was getting the right care. So what I always say is it's helpful to keep your medical information on a note card. But now in 2022, I would encourage people to set up like a Google Doc, just a single page that anyone can access in the family and share it with the family. And have that information as something that you're always ready to present if the doctor has a question about a medication change or some other significant event uh, at the end of the day. And if you can make it work from a financial standpoint, think about a concierge medicine doc, because that's somebody who might be able to help you quarterback the care and really take a huge load off your shoulders.
2: So speaking of concierge physicians, jail, I actually think you were the ultimate concierge physician for your parents. And, you know, you were a doc when they were both dealing with cancer. I was a kid when my dad went through cancer. And I I actually wished at the time I had medical know-how so I could help him. And I know you've kind of gone back to especially when he was first diagnosed and sort of asked, you know, could you handle it differently? I think you've handled this beautifully. And I say that. You know, both from a uh, professional and from a personal perspective. I think you are, have been a wonderful son, and I think you should always be really proud of what you did for your dad.
1: Well, I appreciate it.
2: Yeah. So again, back to the professional side of things. One thing I think our listeners should know, and I hope they don't have to go through cancer treatment, but if they do, oncologists are really the de facto primary care doc during cancer treatment, meaning that I very seldom send my patient back to, their original primary care provider if they're on treatment with me. I sort of feel like that's Mm. my responsibility. And actually, I I think most oncologists feel that way. I was taught during my training, every good oncologist is a good internist first. Mm. Um, Now that said, like when you meet me, I've got an hour with you and the focus is very quickly going to shift from whatever you were dealing with before, like you said, with your father, you know, diabetes and hypertension, it's very quickly going to become the cancer that is nearly the sole emphasis. So just like you're talking about people coming prepared, sort of having a synoptic capsule of what's going on with them and their and their medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I think that is crucial to convey to the oncologist as soon as possible. Like just today, in fact, I was refilling someone's blood pressure medicine. I didn't prescribe it in the first place. I am more than happy to continue it. And so I would definitely mm-hmm. empower people to say to their oncologist, hey, can you help me with these medical issues during treatment? And I guarantee you most of my brethren would say yes. Uh, and that again, that minimizes the number of physicians' visits when you're already so occupied necessarily with with the cancer. Um, so, with all that said, Al, and I think you know where I'm going with this. You, you already implied that your father's brain tumor uh, carries a, a rather infamously uh, poor prognosis. Can you tell us what happened after the after he was done with the
1: radiation? Sure. So, you know, from the time he was diagnosed, you know, I understood what we were dealing with and it's sort of the flip side to being a physician, right? You know, if you, you, you know what the real story is, you know, what the median survival is, you know, what the mode is, you know, all those things. And, you know, what I understood was, you know, we were talking 12 to 18 months sort of best case, but that actually went 19 months. So he really yeah. exceeded expectations, particularly given the fact that, you know, he had this sort of poorly treated diabetes and hypertension, which were like dramatically exacerbated by the steroids that they gave him. So, you know, we decided to do the surgery to, you know, relieve the swelling in his brain and at least try one round of treatment on the off chance that, you know, we, he might be a super, uh, a super responder. Sometimes, you know, patients actually will be off the charts. If you look at a distribution of patients, you might see that the average is 12 months, but sometimes there's a guy out here who's, you know, at 36 months. Have you ever seen that?
2: Yeah, we have a term for that in oncology. That's called exceptional responder. And you definitely want to be an exceptional responder if you have the misfortune to have cancer.
1: Got it. Understood. So, uh, you know, eventually the tumor recurred as it was like to, as it was wont to do. And as a family, we made a decision. We said, do we try to treat more in, in a way that's largely going to be futile and potentially loaded with all kinds of side effects and, and negative impacts to my dad's health? Or are we going to try to focus on comfort and taking care of him through the end of his life? And that's actually what we did. And we focused on a program that's called Home Hospice. And uh, you know that's something that's becoming more common these days and more organizations are offering this, which is essentially hospice means that we're really not trying to stop the, the cancer. What we're trying to do is make sure that you're comfortable or treating the symptoms and making sure that you have all the resources that you need there. So do you guys uh, prescribe a lot of home hospice these days at Intermountain, Mark?
2: Yeah. And in fact, <clears throat> during my career, it has been the exception, not the rule that someone would enter hospice in a hospital or in a separate mm-hmm. hospice facility. It is almost always done at home. And as you're going to speak to here, I think that that actually allows the most comfort, the most dignity, the most familiarity. I mean, far from that horrendous ER bay where your dad had to wait for his surgery. When you're at home, provided we can bring the resources to you and your family,
1: I think that is far and away the most humane thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we largely took care of my dad in the comfort of the home that he had lived in for, you know, 40 years. It was great because he was able to receive guests and have friends come to see him. And, you know, essentially, other than the fact that he had this cancer, was sort of living like the life that he had he had lived before. He had two short admissions where he had to go to a rehab hospital, and it was largely caused by us, right? It's what's mm-hmm. called iatrogenic cause. Iatro meaning the healer, genic caused by. So it was caused by the healer. Again, you know, he continued to have a lot of problems with his diabetes and his hypertension. So we tried to, you know, back off on the steroid that was being used to reduce the swelling in his brain, but. Unfortunately, sometimes we came back too quickly on the steroid and it ended up sort of making him uptunded or, you know, sort of less responsive. So he ended up doing two short rehab hospital stays. But other than that, for 19 months, the guy basically was taken care of in the comfort of his own home, surrounded by his loved ones, and really, you know, had what I have referred uh, to as a controlled descent. We knew what was going to happen, but we managed it the whole way. And I think, you know, had probably as good of an outcome. And I know we probably want to talk in the future about how doctors die, but I think that, you know, the way my dad passed away was literally the textbook way to do it. Mm. So he actually stayed in the home until seven days before he died. And then we went to a hospice. There was a a very nice hospice in a a, a town, a few towns away from where we were. Um, My dad uh, went in to status epilepticus so that's a uh, mm. constant uh, seizures 2 days yeah. into his stay so our timing was almost perfect and uh, he eventually passed away at the hospice but you know again as i look back and i I've, I've replayed this film many many times and you know have yeah. had this discussion with my mom did we do the right thing honestly i think every decision we made was the right decision yeah. and uh, you know I, I i feel good about it 8 years later
2: well, as an oncologist, the audience can't see this. This is bad radio. I'm nodding vigorously because even now, JL, even all these years later, like we have not made, unfortunately, huge advances for your dad's brain tumor. And certainly after what he already did, the actions are very scant and none of them are particularly effective, unfortunately. So I, I you know, to the extent that it's my place to say so, I think you absolutely made the right decision.
1: Uh, you know, I think the reality that comes out of this is that planning is really important in healthcare in general. And that particularly in a condition like cancer, thinking ahead is important. And it it can be very difficult as a family to think ahead because often thinking ahead means thinking to the end. But, you know, making sure that you have advanced directives in place, a healthcare proxy, all the things that you need are really important. And again, I think in terms of hacks, you know, the home-based care, I think is hugely valuable. I think that is a a big emerging area in healthcare now, Uh, you know, taking care of people, in the home, and it's something I would highly recommend talking to your oncologist about advanced directives. I think, as you said, you know, any competent oncologist and oncology center will already have you thinking about that stuff, but making sure that you're getting a checklist, understanding the documents that you need to have in place, because, you know, in our case, like, it, it happened quickly when we realized it was going to happen. So knowing ahead of time, what's going to happen and planning for it can allow you to have a better quality of life, a better experience and, uh, you know, a, a, a more full experience as a family in the last days that you have together.
2: Yeah. That's so well said. Um, wow. So again, practically regarding home-based care, The pandemic has been absolutely awful. That goes without saying. But one silver lining is that, and not just at the end of life, uh, we've been asking the very practical and necessary question, what kind of care can we and should we be delivering at home? And the reason COVID brought this about is the last thing we wanted is folks having to come to our clinics, coming to our hospitals, if... We could do the opposite and bring the treatment to them. And I actually think that that is um, a crucial change in dynamic that will last beyond this horrendous virus, I hope. And then also, as long as we're getting specific about, about cancer, I think it is very reasonable to ask the oncologist, can you stay in one way or the other involved during hospice? Because otherwise, I'll be honest with you, JL, this has been a, a point of huge and, and quite abrupt sometimes disconnect in a therapeutic relationship. Like I I came into oncology hoping that I would develop this kinship with my patients, knowing it was going to hurt when I lost them. And there have been some jarring transitions sometimes when a patient goes to hospice, I'm basically not involved anymore. And then I just find out, you know, sometimes because an obituary is sent to me, the patient passed. it just oh feels goodness. wrong on multiple levels. So it is okay. I think it's actually appropriate if the patient or their family asks the oncologist, hey, can you stay involved? Most hospice agencies are run by separate physicians, and that's what they do. That's their specialty. But it is still, in my mind, the right thing to do if the oncologist is at least kept notified as to how that patient's doing uh, during those those days, those weeks, sometimes those months. Absolutely. Um, so just a little bit of an insight there for me. Wow. So that has been a lot that we've discussed today. And you know, Jay and I both, for our listeners, hope that by sharing our stories with you, that you'll see us as human beings too. And in fact, many physicians have experiences on the receiving end of healthcare, Mm -hmm. either as caregivers for loved ones or as patients ourselves. And that means we feel, I think you could hear in Jale's voice, you you can feel the frustration that we have with this system when it feels broken and unfair and needlessly complicated and heartless. We want to work with you. And I often tell spouses and children and friends of my patients, I view them as therapeutic allies. It's not a case of us versus them. It's us together versus the disease. It my practice cancer, but you can apply this model to almost any illness. For sure. JL, I think you would agree that times of adversity, and I know this is kind of try to look for the silver lining, there's sometimes growth opportunities Mm-hmm. And you've shared so much about your father. He sounds like an absolutely incredible man. I would have loved to have met him. But I'd like to share a quote here from my own dad. So this is from the book, like I mentioned up front, I'm reading during Lent. And I think this quote is just so fitting. So my dad said, Crisis affords the opportunity now, however brief or lengthy, to discard the trivial and the shallow and to fill every moment in relationship with meaning, intensity, and value. And, you know, those are hard words to live by, but they definitely inspire me. And, you know, I think these are the, these sort of crucible experiences, the ones that shape us both as docs,
1: but also as people. Understood. And, and that quote that you read is literally only a theologian could write a quote like that, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. O- o- only, only somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about God <laughs> could, could, could write a quote like that. So that's very moving.
2: Thank you so much. And we'll talk about, you know, my dad at some point. But you know, I think he had a lot of people come to him asking, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? That was a question he got a lot. And, you know, he had to think, you're right, he had to wrestle with that. And that was one of his answers. So JL, thank you for sharing your story with us And, and and thank you also for trying to meld that experience from your family into healthcare realities and hacks that our listeners can use. I'm sure they'll be very appreciative of your perspective and are are grateful to you for sharing lessons that you learned the hard way.
1: Happy to share. And uh, again, great to tell the story after eight years.
2: Yeah. I, I hope that was some catharsis. And speaking of our listeners, we would love to hear from you. JL, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you?
1: Sure. You can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm active there. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Jean-Luc Neptune, J-E-A-N-L-U-C-N-E-P-T-U-N-E. And our show email is serious at offscript.com.
2: You can reach out to me on Twitter at Mark LewisMD or call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. You can leave a question on our voicemail. We might just use it on the show. Our number is 855-audio-66. That's 855-283-4666.
1: And just remember that while we love talking about medicine and sharing our healthcare hacks with you, this show doesn't provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure to ask your doctor.
2: Thanks again, JL, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care and join us next time for Is It Serious?
3: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.